This episode of Seize the A is brought to you by Matrix. And I think it's not just on the day, it's the weeks leading up to it. Your narrative really affects how you're going to approach a situation. Everyone kept saying, oh, you deserve that gold medal, you deserve it. And I was like, yeah, I deserve this. (laughs) But actually, you can't say you deserve it until you've gone and earned it. You've got to say, I deserve to do my best today. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. I would almost go so far as to say it would be un-Australian not to know who today's guest is or to have shed a tear watching her incredible Olympic performance in Tokyo just a few weeks ago. While all of our incredible athletes bore the weight of great expectations on their shoulders, having debuted at the London Olympics at 18 years old to win silver, then taking home a bronze medal in Rio, Jess Fox probably faced more pressure than most as she tackled the canoe slalom this year. Add two Olympic canoeists as parents, one as Jess's coach, and the fact that Tokyo was the first ever Olympic Games to include the C1 class, which you'll learn all about in our chat, for female athletes. I pretty much had a breakdown just thinking about competing. And yet the legendary Jess charged her way through to a gold medal just 48 hours after taking bronze in the K1 class and lived to tell the tale. If you listen to the show often, you might be able to recognise my fangirl-related babbling. I talk very quickly and very inarticulately when I get this excited, and I was chuffed to have this amazing woman on the show just weeks after her win, while she's already back preparing for the World Cup in Spain. Even more so because I know she's been listening to CZA since way back in 2019, which just blows my mind. If you watched Jess at the Games and thought her warmth and humility shone through on TV, she's equally as delightful one-on-one, and I learned so much about canoeing, maintaining razor-sharp focus, and allowing yourself to focus on just doing your best rather than winning being your only objective. We also clarified the condom story, among many other chuckles, and her plays to yay outside of sport. I hope you guys enjoy getting to know our champion as much as I did. Jess Fox, welcome to Seize the Yay. Yay, thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining. I mean, so soon after such an incredibly crazy whirlwind third Olympics stellar performance by you, I cannot believe that A, you're racing again, B, you're even speaking words, (laughs) and C, that you're on this show, which I found out when I went to stalk you and say, like, would you, you know, would you come on the show, that you'd already been listening, which just blew my brain <laughs> yes I have been listening for a while love the I love the just the bubbly fun um inspiring vibe of the of the show so you're doing an amazing job and yeah honored to be on it I in terms of the speaking the words it's still a bit early here so I don't know <laughs> I don't know how good my speaking of the words will be but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that we can even do this from Europe on totally different time zones is pretty extraordinary. I mean, technology still blows me away, but 
I don't know if I'd be coherent, not only just at 7am in the morning, but let alone after (laughs) the emotional whirlwind you've been through. I can safely say the whole nation has been following your every moment, your whole entire family, your backstory, all your dogs, everything you've eaten. Like we all know everything you've been doing. (laughs) I love it. It's, it's been so overwhelming, actually, just the outpouring of love, of support, of all the, yeah, all the messages of of people filming or taking photos of their reactions or their kids dressing up or yeah every, everyone's an expert on, on my sport now which is also amazing oh, I have to admit I did ask my husband like we were watching the whole thing and as you know Ange was updating us on everything <laughs> you were doing she's your number one fan which is saying something <laughs> and has been for a long time I was like so I know canoeing and I know that K1 and C1 are canoe and kayak but like what is the slalom bit like explain that to me he was just like are you serious? <laughs> and now everyone is an expert on the different paddles and the yeah. speed and your turnaround. It's so funny. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, I love it. Well, as you know, before we jump into how it's been and the journey to get there and all the amazing things that you've done, I love to start by breaking the ice with a little question about what the most down-to-earth thing is about you, which is a weird question to answer about yourself. But I think when you're right, the whole world has been following you. Everyone is a seeming expert on what you've been doing. You know, there's a bit of a glossy surface around our identities as you know, portrayed through the media, particularly as an Olympic gold medalist. (laughs) So what's something really relatable about you? Because you're right up high on a pedestal right now. (laughs) Take us back down. I love how you sing Olympic gold medalist. I think I'm going to have to do do that when I introduce myself next time. (laughs) No. No. uh, Seven-time world champion. That's really down to earth, isn't it? (laughs) I think, I mean, like you said, I've listened to the show before and every time I listen, I'm like, what would I say about this? And and I still don't really know, but I think probably the fact that I still live at home (laughs) and that I'm very messy. I'm just... I'm sitting where I'm staying at the moment in, in my room and like my suitcase, it just explodes out. And I, there's just, I've been traveling for 15 years and I just, I still don't know how to be really neat and tidy and minimalist. So I think that's something I need to keep working on. But yeah, I'm, I think I'm pretty, pretty chill and down to earth. I am obsessed with dogs and yeah, still live at home and, and I'm a big, yeah family lover I love spending time with my family oh I love that so much I love how much you love dogs I love that I was about to tell you a story about what Paul posted maybe seven and a half minutes ago and you're like (laughs) oh yeah I already saw it I already know (laughs) across the globe I already know what your dog's doing cool I love Paul during the Olympics I created a like a separate Instagram account for you know, staying sort of zen and not being on social media too much. And I literally just followed dog pages. So it was my, oh my God, that was my that's the best answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that I loved so much is, you know, everyone knows that it must be so nerve wracking to be at the Olympics, unless you've been there. I'm sure we can't even imagine how terrifying and exciting and just overwhelming it is. But I loved reading afterwards how you were like, yeah, I felt really good, but then I just threw up, but now I'm okay. So I'll be all right. I was like, okay, cool. Cool, man. <laughs> Everyone else is like, I got this. I'm focused. And you're like, I just vomited, but I'm good. <laughs> yeah. You've got to tell yourself that. Otherwise you freak out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thrown up before 
an event. So I was just thinking, okay, this is new, but we can deal with it. So yeah, <laughs> the Olympics is all about the emotion, the stress, the nerves, the pressure, and just um, being able to do what you know how to do under those circumstances. It's it's oh, it's pretty hard, and I think that's being able to do your best race on that day is the most amazing thing. So I had an amazing time at the Olympics, but but that was funny when I did my interview. I was like, I'm just going to tell everyone everything because I need to look it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I, you're right. Like I, we can't even imagine not only being an elite athlete, but on the one day, like, you know, your body feels strong some days and weak other days. And some days it performs really well for you. And sometimes things just don't go to plan, but you have one day and one time, small time period to make it work. I can't even imagine. Like, Can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> it's one day every four years. So the likelihood of you waking up and feeling good that day is pretty slim. So <laughs> I think, you know, for me, I, that, but that's kind of my approach to training and competition is that I've now got uh, 15 years experience where I know that I'm probably not going to wake up feeling my best or something won't feel right in my body or I might have my period or I might have a head cold or something and you've still got to try and do the best that you can. So at training, it's kind of always about doing the best you can with, with what you've got, knowing that the stars may not align for you on, on on that one day every four years and you've just got to deal with it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, when you put it like that, the stats are really, really slim. <laughs> but you defied all odds and did an incredible job. But before we get there, as you know, the first section is your way TA where we trace back through all the different sort of chapters and versions of yourself and different, you know, sliding doors moments and forks in the road that happened that, as you mentioned, you know, you have been doing this for 15 years, whereas for a lot of people in one Olympics, they suddenly are paying attention to canoe slalom and suddenly are following Jess Fox and suddenly are in love with you and you're Australia's golden <laughs> girl. But no one wakes up like that. No one, you know, hasn't spent 10, 15, 20 years waking up early to train and, you know, figuring out who they are. So I think what I love most about this show is the bits that you don't hear about as much on the media or you can't go and find in other articles, but who ultimately created who you are today. So take us back to very young Jess, what you were like as a kid, being French born. You mentioned your family's in Marseille, which I thought was really cool. You also speak French. I went to um, Sciences Po in oh, Paris. Wow. So I was like, later on, we have to practice. You can do the rest of the episode in French if you like. <laughs> <laughs> if I had practiced a little bit more, I would love that challenge, but I want to do you justice and I just don't have the language skills to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the fascinating things about your story, sorry, I'm talking way too much because I'm excited, but one of the fascinating things is that your parents were also both canoeists at the Olympics and your sister and your aunt. So I wonder if there was ever a different career path, even in your mind, or were you just kind of born in the water yeah. <laughs> and then moved to New South Wales and went in that water? I was born in a kayak, actually. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, we were literally at my grandma's uh, last week going through some photos and like old newspaper clippings of my parents. And there's this photo of me as a six month old in a kayak with both my parents behind me at the club in Marseille. And I was holding my first ever kayak membership license oh. that my grandpa had had got me so at six months of age I was already you know a member of, of the French kayak club and it was kind of in his eyes in my grandpa's eyes there was no other option <laughs> you were going to battle no but it was I think you know my earliest memories are the smell of the club of like 
boat repair, you know, resin and, and glue and things that were being wow. used to repair kayaks and like jumping on the pontoon while mum was training. And yeah, we moved to Australia when I was four because my parents got jobs coaching the kayak team ahead of the Olympics in Sydney. And it was meant to be just a one year thing. And it kind of just kept getting extended, extended. And then we started school and eventually we just loved it and, and stayed in Australia. But for me, I think for a long time, I didn't want to paddle, probably didn't want to be compared right. to my parents, didn't really enjoy the flat water kayaking that they'd make us do when we'd go on holidays. The kayaks would always come. And I remember just being like, oh, I just want to stay at home and read my book or go to the beach. <laughs> but we've got to go kayaking. So <laughs> it wasn't really something I enjoyed as a kid. So I did a lot of other different sports, was always the sporty kid at school and yeah, did netball, swimming, gymnastics, little A's, tried everything really and really kind of enjoyed swimming and did a bit of tumbling and gymnastics as well. So it's mainly the floor and the trampoline stuff. So it's more acrobatics and I loved that as well. And I actually broke my arm when I was 11 doing that. And Disaster. Disaster. And my arm looked like the Harry Potter arm, you know, when it's like zigzagging. Oh. <laughs> When they drink the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my physio, who was actually my physio at the Olympics, which is amazing because we've come full circle now, but he sort of suggested I paddle to rehab. So I got back in the kayak and I was at that age where there were some other girls my age, so I made some friends, and I was old enough to go on the Whitewater Rapids in, in Penrith and I just loved it from that moment. But, yeah, I think it was kind of that was a sliding doors moment for me, the broken arm where I originally wanted to go to the Olympics in swimming or, you know, a different sport and then eventually just ended up back paddling. Oh, my gosh. I think it's always so fascinating because you do sort of read about your parents and see you and your dad, oh, my God, when he was on the TV and you were just like, I can't hear you. And he's like proclaiming Aww. his deep love for his daughter and how proud he was. He's like, I can't hear you, but I love you and I can't, what, I can't wait to show you this one. We were all, uh, we were all just bawling. We the collectively the nation we're just falling for you <laughs> but the first assumption is oh of course she was going to do canoeing but it's really interesting when your parents do have their you know a really big influence on you but then you kind of rebel against it like the role of family in choosing your path yay as I like to call it is really complex often it's not just oh I'm going to do that like for example, you were really academic as well. It's funny you said you were the sporty kid. I'm like, you got like a 99 in your HSC. <laughs> it wasn't like you didn't have a lot of high achieving options for, you know, around and even studying now still. So I think it's really interesting that you kind of pushed it away, but then ended up finding it. You have to kind of find your love for things by yourself. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's how it happened. Yeah. And I think it, it, for me, it was really shying away from the comparison element too because they I knew they were both you know big champions in the sport and I maybe didn't want to be compared to them and I, I do remember my first junior world championships I was 15 and I was in France and I, like I could understand the loudspeaker and he was comparing me to mum and like can she be <gasps> mum was the queen of the water can just be the princess of the water and I was like oh my goodness <laughs> this is what it's going to be. <laughs> but by that stage, I'd committed and I was loving it. But yeah, I think my parents never really pushed us. They wanted us to have the skills to be able to paddle and, and make it a family activity, which I'm, I'm so glad we did because we could see the world from a different perspective. And it was just now something, a passion that we share, which is amazing. But they were always very uh, strong on education and making sure, you know, yes, you can 
do all the sport and the after school activities you want, but you do need to make sure that you're doing well at school and study and apply yourself. So yeah, I think I had a, a great balance and they were amazing and supportive. But I think also I had great supportive teachers and friends at school. Um, I went to a public school, Blackson High in the Lower Blue Mountains, and mm. the teachers, you know, when you turn up and you say, oh, I'd like to go overseas for eight weeks to go kayaking and do these competitions, not all the teachers are going to be on board. So, yeah, I had to show that I was really committed to applying myself and, and doing the the work online and emailing my assignments and that sort of thing. So yeah, very lucky to have had supportive people around me. And I think after all the comparisons to your parents, you have now been pretty much named the greatest individual paddler of all time with your seven gold medals and what is it, seven world championships and one bajillion gold medals. <laughs> You've well and truly smashed the comparison out of the water, which must just seem so surreal to have titles like that now. And you're, you're only 27. I mean, extraordinary achievements and I think what's really interesting as well is that you know how I often talk about the idea that people set a goal like getting to the Olympics and winning gold and they really want it straight away like there's such a sense of instantly getting there and arriving at your destination and you know everything that's a silver is a is a fail like it's gold or nothing else but it took you three Olympics to get the goal and I mean, obviously you achieved a lot along the way, but you debuted at 18, but it was in 2021 when you ultimately became the first Olympic champion in the C1 category, which I think is another important lesson for people who just want to rush to the end. It took you a lot of chapters to get here and each one, I, you wouldn't look back and go, oh, that was a waste and a failure. Like they each taught you things to get you here. So can you take us through from that debut when you were 18, like how your relationship to success and goal setting has kind of changed and then leading into what it was like to compete this year in I think it was the first event time that's ever the C1 has ever been yeah in the Olympics yeah I, th I think it's interesting how you say you know we want the results straight away or you set a goal and you want it to happen and something that sport does teach us is that it's a long process like you set that goal or you've got that competition you can't just turn up the day before and train for it you've got to be setting yourself up weeks months years in advance for that so I think for me, 2010 was a marker year because I was at my first world championships. I was 16 and I was thinking Rio de Janeiro is my goal for the Olympics. You know, I'll be 22. It's in six years time. And I performed really well. I think I came fifth at those world champs. And I thought, well, hang on, why don't I try out for London? Like I've got nothing to lose. So it'll be a great experience knowing that there's only one woman who can represent Australia in my sport. It would be very cutthroat and very hard challenge. And I remember writing down on a piece of paper, London 2012, and underneath it, the Olympic rings. And I also had 90, I think it was 97.4 I don't know why that number, it just seemed really high and out of reach at the time. But I was <laughs> so specific. Yeah, I was doing year 12. And so I had that paper stuck up on my wall. And it's sort of what I saw every day when I woke up to, to go training or when I woke up early to do my assignments or, you know, it's really sort of something visual that kept me inspired and on track and reminded me what I was working towards. And so, yeah, I mean, finishing high school with a 99.1 and topping the state in PDHPE <laughs> was like, I was mind blown at the power of that sort of piece of paper. And I remember thinking, why didn't I write 99.9? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, no, it was it was incredible. And then a few months later, I qualified for my first Olympics in London, and just sort of was going from strength to strength in in terms of my training and my experience as well. I arrived in London had no expectations. I just wanted to do the best runs that I could and make the final. And sitting on that start line in the final with fifteen thousand people in the stands when in Penrith normally we get, you know, 20 parents come and watch us was just (laughs) the most amazing experience. I I never would have imagined that I would win a silver medal at my first Olympics and it was just a dream come true. And after that, it was quite funny because then there was that expectation that, you know, you would, you would win or you would keep winning things, but I was still quite fresh on the, on the scene, you know? So I felt like I had to keep proving myself that it wasn't a fluke at the Olympics. But yeah, then I won a couple of world titles and and coming into Rio was very different because there was now that expectation to turn the silver into gold. And again, in Tokyo, after winning bronze in Rio, the the same you know you're missing one color so (laughs) (laughs) yeah babe bring it home bring it home so I think each Olympic experience has been really different for me because obviously Rio I was the favorite but in my sport any one of the top 10 women can win that Olympic final so uh, even though I was a little bit disappointed I was still so proud to, to win a second Olympic medal and then Tokyo was incredible because I had the opportunity to compete in two events with that inclusion of the women's C1. So two opportunities, two two events, a lot more challenging to to manage that and manage the emotions. But yeah, an, an incredible an incredible experience. Oh my gosh. And only 48 hours apart as well. I was just watching thinking, oh my God, I've barely gone to sleep after watching the first event and like had a snack <laughs> and like had a nap. And then I'm watching you again. Like imagine what you were trying to do in between. <laughs> I mean, pretty much the same thing, having snacks and trying to sleep. <laughs> I don't even know how you slept. Like I could barely sleep before some of the events, let alone actual Olympians. Yeah. But before we kind of go into a little bit more about that, we have to talk about the condom, obviously, because that's <laughs> innovation at, at its highest form. But to just to give people a lay of the land who haven't followed the event and who don't, I sort of went straight into lingo because I get really excited. I did all my research and now I'm like, oh, K1, C1, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but can you just explain why you could do K1 at London and Rio and then what C1 means and how it's different? And, you know, I, I think it's the single and double bladed paddles that's the difference, but just to the lay person, can you explain why it was such a big deal this year to win the C1? Yeah, so the kayak, you're in a seated position with a double-bladed paddle and in the canoe you're kneeling in the boat and you're strapped in and you've got a single-bladed paddle but you still do the same course the, the two events it's kind of like freestyle and, and backstroke and I guess the thing was that in 1972 the women could compete in kayak that was our first Olympic debut I guess the men had three events the women had one event and since that time there's only ever been one event for the women and three for the men until 2010 when we had uh, the Women's C1 added to the World Championship program. And it was a really big fight to try and get gender equality in our sport and, and to get that, you know, parity of events and, and really try and move our sport forward and, and make our federations understand that it's really important that we have equal opportunities for the men and the women in our sport. So there was a big mm-hmm. campaign led by Australia and Great Britain and France as well. And all these countries were really pushing to 
build the women's canoe up and and to Im- improve the level of the women to increase the number of women competing and to get us at the Olympic Games. So yeah, I was really proud to be part of one of those I guess pioneering women really pushing for that and to actually finally have our moment in in Tokyo in 2021 was just amazing because all those women on that start line were the first representing their country in the women's C1 at the Olympic Games and it was just so cool to be a part of that. Oh, my God. No wonder you threw up. I would have, like, <laughs> passed out, had a fit, had a seizure, had a breakdown. <laughs> like, throwing up is the bare minimum to have that much on your shoulders and knowing that your mum was also an Olympic champion, like, you're carrying the flag for her and, oh, my God. How do you manage that, like, I think one of the questions I get most commonly on the show, other than how do you find your passion, is how do you deal with societal expectations? Not just of which pathway you should take, but once you're on that pathway about the way you should manage it and the results you should get and the norms of like what success is and what failure is. And like it's really hard to go into something like that with the nation literally writing headlines just to take gold home after <laughs> silver and bronze, you know, like the- yeah. <laughs> do you just block it all out is it like a blinkers situation or do you meditate on it like how do you kind of stay focused and go into a race like that knowing that if you didn't walk away with the gold you could still be proud of yourself because I think that's a big mental thing yeah I think once you get to the Olympics it's mostly a mental game than it is a physical or technical because everyone's at the top of their game but the mental is where the differences are made especially with yourself like you can easily affect your performance based on the state of your mind and how you manage all those external things and and I definitely tried to block it all out I mean in the village the Australian HQ had you know TVs everywhere with the Channel 7 broadcast going in every five minutes when I you know walk downstairs for a snack or a coffee I'd see maybe Jess Fox competes for gold tomorrow and I'd be like okay block it out like walk away <laughs> and actually the morning after my kayak event, I walked downstairs and I saw, I think it was my dad was doing a sunrise interview and the headline underneath was Jess Fox misses gold. And I was like, oh, (gasps) okay. So this is, yeah, you've kind of got to be able to block those things out. And I think if you don't, then it can easily eat you up and just add to the load, add to the stress. And for me, yeah, I think I always remind myself that my sport is really challenging there are so many variables you know it's not like a a 100 meter running or or swimming race where you know if you've got the best time in the world and and you're leading you've got the best time the best pb then you know you should win basically off the stats whereas for us you can't really go off the stats because every course is different every race is different and yeah it's it's really about who can deliver their best on the day in the conditions so that's what I always try to remind myself and just focus on those the process knowing that I've done the preparation and that I just need to sit on that start line calm confident and do the best that I can and the only expectations that matter are mine but I think that the kayak and the C1 event and the canoe event at the Olympics, the I felt it. I, I definitely felt the external expectations and pressure, especially after the kayak. And I remember thinking as I was warming up in C1, you know, you, you've got all, all these other thoughts that are coming into your head like, you know, imagine if you if you stuff up today or, oh, my goodness, if you don't win, what are you going to say? When, in fact, it's not a given that you're going to win. You've got to keep earning those podium spots you know you've got to win your medal so yeah it's really challenging but I think that's where 
the meditation comes in, the mindfulness, the breath work, any other, you know, psych work that we do on the outside comes in. Just a quick break to give one of our amazing partners in Yay, Matrix, a little shout out and a very big thank you for making this episode possible. You may have seen some fabulous, very fun and colourful content coming out of our photo shoot from earlier in the year. Yep, that one where I got bangs, <laughs> which kicked off this heritage brand's groundbreaking brand refresh and relaunch to better embrace beauty and of course hair of all kinds. I'm so, so thrilled to join fellow ambassadors, Rachel Sarah, who you'll be hearing from Jess Vanderlei and AJ Clementine on the Matrix Australia squad, particularly since we all share a common experience for unique reasons of feeling unrepresented in the beauty industry. It is so exciting to see the gradual shift towards diversity and inclusion in beauty, media and all kinds of industries. With these values underlying the relaunch brand, I'm even more in love with the product range that offers something for every hair need. I mean, just look at the four of us and how different our hair is to each other. It's available in Matrix salons and online. My hot tip, the Total Results Miracle Creator Spray. It's a 20-in-1 covering just about everything I've ever wanted for my hair, but compatibly with my on-the-go jam-packed lifestyle. I'll pop the link in the show notes. You are welcome. We've kind of weaved into, you know, the NATAs and self-doubt is one of the most common that comes up. And it's funny that we refer often to imposter syndrome and self-doubt, but don't acknowledge external doubt when it's not doubt from yourself, when it's like channel seven doubting your ability to do it, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's even more of like an enormous external pressure weighing in on your mental process. But I love what you said about how your sport, but I think any real activity or pursuit that people put their minds to most of the time if you're stopped by anything it's not because you couldn't physically do the task it's because you mentally couldn't do the task so I feel like people put a lot of effort into like their physical ability to do something and don't realize that mental is 50% if not more of most attempts at anything because yeah that's yeah you can talk yourself out of something so easily oh it's amazing how much your self-talk affects your physiology as well you know the way that you react to your words and I think it, it it's not just on the day it's the weeks leading up to it your narrative really affects how you're going to approach a situation and I think also visualizing is super important and not just in sport but in other areas you know like I do it if I'm going to give a big presentation or something I I tend to kind of use the same skills that I've developed in sport in that I'll visualize myself doing it. I'll give myself cues. I'll do some breathing work because that's how I get myself in the right mental state of overcoming the doubt that always is going to creep in. It's just how you can mm. counteract those negative words or negative self-talk that comes up. What did you find being in the village, knowing that you're away from, like the village looked like so much fun, so amazing to be surrounded by athletes from all different sports and like cheering each other on. But I can also imagine it's kind of like school camp. Like you go from having <laughs> the best of the best in your own private space and your own like rituals and routines to suddenly having to just live in this constructed village and compete at the, you know, not in your own bed and like <laughs> all of those kind of variables, like you mentioned, the variables are changing all the time. How do you like create consistency around that? Even if your environment is changing all the time, like I think at the moment people are finding it really hard that their external world is changing and they can't control that. But I think it's a really good 
lesson to speak to someone like you who has to control your inner environment no matter where you're sleeping or eating or staying or chatting or resting. Yeah, I think, I mean, you talk about school camp, but I love the Olympic Village. I think it's the best. It had the best vibe this year, maybe because of the last 18 months that we've been mm-hmm. through. But I think the Aussie HQ was just an incredible um, setup. And yeah, the, look, if you're used to luxury and like double beds and a massive, you know, ensuite bathroom or something, probably not going to be um as comfortable but I'm used to sleeping wherever like we're always on the road <laughs> and, and hotels or airbnbs and, and changing beds and things so I think we've learned to be super adaptable and I think athletes generally are very you have to be adaptable and flexible otherwise you get too obsessed over fine details that are going to again, make you spiral because you're thinking you're focusing on the wrong thing. So for me, as long as I can eat, sleep and recover, then that's really important for me. And just trying to make routines and rituals wherever I go. It's funny, I tend to kind of get into a routine, whatever I tend to do the first day or second day sort of ends up sticking and it becomes my routine for the rest of the time I'm there. So, you know, that might've been having breakfast. I was lucky I had a balcony. So having breakfast at the balcony, having a coffee downstairs um, at the Olympic rings that were there and people watching. Or, yeah, just little things like that became part of my routine to help me stay calm. And then I'll take with me things like I'll always have my pillow. Obviously, mum is my coach, so I'm lucky that she comes with me too. So I do have a little bit of home with me and that support is amazing. But yeah, I, I just, I tend to be fairly flexible and not get too tied up or or superstitious or anything like that because we don't know if you know if if you miss the bus and your your warm-up time gets reduced you have to deal with that so you've always got to be ready to kind of adapt to the situation at the Olympics. Yeah I think we get this idea that Olympians do have like of course in training you have the best of everything but you do have to be so flexible because you're competing in different climates and temperatures and places you can't go and live for four years in the place where the next Olympics is like you've got to be adaptable which I hear you were in relation to the use of condoms so tell (laughs) us what happened to your damaged kayak and how you very cleverly innovated around the problem that's a pandemic pivot if I ever heard one yeah that was a great segue I'm not sure I've ever thought I would go viral (laughs) around a condom but, you know, it, it, there was a little bit of fake news around it because I don't know who picked it up first. I I started a TikTok that I, like, I would never really post much on it and I would post whatever wasn't going on my Instagram as, like, you know, the, the, the secondhand the overspill? Stuff. Yeah. And so I just posted that story, like, my teammate Lucian was um, adding uh, some carbon to my kayak tail because I guess there's certain, if you hit the bottom too many times, it kind of wears away the the boat and then you end up with a little hole and it leaks so we put some bog or some resin on the tail and then using a condom you sort of cover it and it makes it really smooth as opposed to using cling film which leaves it all bumpy and annoying so the condom we use them all all the time but the media outlet sort of made it out to be that the olympics gave us condoms that we couldn't use in the olympic village because of covid and so i used it to fix my kayak but in fact we've always got them in our repair kit because they're just so handy to to use on on kayaks but yeah it's it's sort of funny because now it's something we do all the time but to the outside person they're like what 
a condom on the kayak. <laughs> But, um, it literally sounded like you invented it for the first yeah, time no, ever I, in Tokyo. Like you were like, oh, I've got this thing. Wow, solution. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's funny because if you watch my, if you watch the TikTok, it's literally me going, I bet you never knew condoms could be used to fix kayaks. And not once do I say like, this saved my Olympics. <laughs> or, um, oh my God, this is a disaster. I need to find a solution. Oh, a condom. Like it's just, and I was watching this happen going, I'll just let it slide. Like surely it'll die down. And then I was getting photos from like Cuba and Argentina and <laughs> the Netherlands and like everywhere that this story had gone everywhere. And so yeah, it was quite funny. Oh, well, I love the clarification. I was totally <laughs> feeling like you had invented this amazing scientific solution on the spot because what a disaster. You couldn't get in the water without it. <laughs> uh, that, that would be... That would be the perfect fairy tale story, wouldn't it? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and from a technical standpoint, I found it so interesting looking at how much the water, like how much you have to navigate force and that you, I read that, you know, the temperature is a lot warmer in Tokyo. Obviously the water's warmer because it is warmer there. How much can you simulate the exact, like for a C1, for example, is the course the same every Olympics or do you get it? in advance and you how do you set that exact thing up like have you even practiced that exact thing before you get in the water no so every white water venue is different some <gasps> some have similarities so <laughs> you're like too many variables <laughs> oh my, i can't i can't compute oh my god <laughs> every white water venue is different and and some have similarities because they use the same sort of blocks and so, for example, the English have the London Olympic venue has the same blocks as the Tokyo venue, and they could sort of move them to simulate similar features as Tokyo. So in Penrith, we've got different block systems, so we can't really replicate the Tokyo course, but we can still do a lot of really good work with what we've got. And, and every course is different, which means you're always working on your adaptability, you're developing your technique on different waves, different stoppers, different features. And so, yeah, the, the gates that they set, we don't actually get to practice. We see the course the night before and we don't practice it, but demo runners sort of do the course for us so we can see what it looks like. We can sort of choose different options or analyse the course and, and think and, you know, take times off the demo runners and things like that. But we don't actually get to have a practice run. But in the lead up, we do get time on the water where we train and try different things. And usually you would have done certain moves that are on the race course but just not sort of strung together as those 25 gates I can't believe I didn't ask that question first that makes it a thousand million times more impressive and it already was <laughs> ridiculously impressive that you can even navigate those turns some of them I'm like how did she just do that the water's going the opposite direction but to <laughs> never have done that like you were talking before about how in 100 meters like you've run there's a standardized olympic yeah. track you know you're even in a 400 you know the bends you know like it there's different lanes but you kind of have done all of the lanes over and over again your whole life there's muscle memory but for you to never have done that course before ever freaks me out so much that's amazing but like we would have paddled on the course so we on the on the water you know you know the features by that stage we had two weeks of training before the olympics but I, yeah it's those gate combinations that we haven't done but you've sort of got to trust your skills and your and your level to know that you've probably done certain features, certain moves before and, and you've got the skills to do it. Just 
you need to be able to string it together. So that's where the visualization comes in because you've got to see yourself doing the course that you haven't yet done um, to tell your muscles and, and your body, yes, you can do this. We've done this in our head. <laughs> now, like, look, <laughs> like we did it. I have this image of me trying to do it. You know, Crufts, you know, if you love dogs, you know that big British dog competition where they have like all the little obstacles and they they have like do spontaneous ones that the dogs haven't done before. I'd be that dog that goes like in the wrong gate and then turns around and stops in the middle of my Olympic run. Like, is it forward or backward? I don't know. (laughs) They do have members on the gates and the green ones you go down and the red ones you come back up. So I feel like you'd be okay with a little bit of practice. <laughs> yeah, just don't maybe. Many don't throw in too many capsizes and rolls, you know. I just was like, how are you to like hairpin turns, like not wasting a second of time? Holy bananas! <laughs> what went through your head when you got like? Did you know towards the end? I feel like your face started to be like, I've got this, like I've got this, and then there's one thousand million pictures of your fo- like the different stages yeah. of emotion that your face went through as you crossed the line. Saw the time, realized like. What actually went through your brain? Yeah, I, I, I tried to stay really sort of in my race and stay focused. And I heard I have this annoying but also really good ability to hear the loudspeaker when they tell me the split time or when they announce the split time, I should say. So I came into gate 10 and I heard that I was two seconds up and then I sort of don't hear it anymore and I kept going on my run. So I knew that I had a good top section but I knew that I also maybe gave away a little bit of time on the bottom, even though it was still a really good run. So I came into that last upstream gate and when I pulled out and I was clean and I hadn't got any penalties, I was like, I, this is a good run, but you sort of, you never know until you cross that finish line. And yeah, when I crossed, it took me a couple of seconds to like compute the time and figure out it's green. I think that's a good thing. Where's the number one? There's the number one. Oh my God, I've just won. So it was sort of... <laughs> you know, a bit of a delayed reaction, but then, yeah, I just let out all that emotion. There was, yeah, joy, screams, a lot of tears, a lot of pent up pressure and, and just the, I guess the last 48 hours after the kayak and, and coming into that race, just being able to perform the way I did being the last to start. I just was so, so thrilled with that race. So yeah, then there was tears when I saw my mom and, and, and gave her a hug and my sister. So yeah, it was really special. Oh my gosh. I love that your mum is your coach as well. I think that's so, so beautiful and like a testament to your relationship as well. But what just a beautiful family moment. And also you're an amazingly not unattractive crier. Like I am the (laughs) ugliest crier. Your cry face has been all over the papers in still, but it's awesome. You just look so elated and happy and like, yeah, you don't have an ugly cry face. So congratulations. That must be my like happy cry, like happy elated cry face, but my sad cry face, my rom-com movie cry face. (laughs) They're very different and I very red and blotchy and just, I must've just had a good a good cry face that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the world is watching me cry face on. <laughs> so coming back to then the expectations that come with that, I mean, you've just smashed through black. Like I've mentioned before, you've literally been now like officially through all your achievements, become the greatest individual paddler of all time in both men's and women's events, which is just incredible. I think one of the really difficult things about achieving goals is then how do you pivot afterwards? How quickly some of us try and move on to like, okay, yeah, I celebrate for one day and then, okay, what do I do next? And 
it's hard to enjoy that moment, but then keep momentum. And then also, as you mentioned, you couldn't come home and you're racing again, like two weeks later (laughs) in Europe. How are you adjusting post the event and what, you know, have you reorientated to new goals? Are you just sitting in the joy of it? I know you're also studying. So do you have another Olympics on the horizon or how is your brain kind of, again, how are you saying words basically is what I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been such a strange period because we haven't really had that, I guess, celebration period because the Aussies had to come home and, and quarantine and then you know, a lot of them in lockdown. So there's not that same vibe as our European or, or other countries where they're coming home, they're doing welcome home parades, they're doing concerts, they're doing all these things and it's kind of like a big celebration and then you can sort of park that and move on. I'm kind of in this like limbo of, well, I'm going to celebrate when I get home in a few months. So I kind of need to refocus now. It's, yeah, it's a strange time, but I I think, you know, not coming home was a choice because I've got other competitions coming up and we're in, in Spain in in the World Cup is in a couple of weeks and then there's a World Cup in Poe. So I'm based in Poe at the moment. I'm getting back into training and it is so hard and I've only had like three, two and a bit weeks off and I'm struggling. So I like I did three sets of like, you know, 15 push-ups and squats and things and I'm, I'm sore today and I'm like, this isn't how it's meant to be. You're an Olympic champion. So, you know, you, you've got to stay humble because you've got to start from scratch again basically and I've got to get back into training and set those goals again. So I'm pretty good at switching my focus and, and moving on and finding new goals and I think the the carrot for me is, is definitely Paris in three years time. You know, it won't be as long to wait this time, hopefully. And yeah, just want to be able to compete in, in the kayak and the canoe event again and keep chasing those goals. And I think for me, because it's so different every race, there's always that sort of challenge and the variety that I love that keeps it fresh and exciting and fun. So yeah, for me, I just want to keep pushing the technique and keep getting closer to the boys and and really lift the level again so I think that'll keep me going and then yeah obviously studying I'm doing an MBA through Griffith Uni so that'll definitely keep me busy and I have a lot to catch up on at the moment so it's a good balance to have though I think to to just have a little bit of distraction and, and something to switch your focus off training. Yeah, I think that leads really nicely into the last section, which you know is your play TA, and that's your identity outside of your vocation or your work or your profession or whatever it may be. Because even if you love your job and even if you have the privilege of doing something that doesn't feel like work, particularly if it's what you love doing with your body and it is really all consuming and you can afford to do only that, I think you do need things that pull your brain completely out of that just to keep fresh, regardless of anything else, just to keep your brain so you're not, you know, you get fresh ideas and perspectives and to rest and give yourself a bit of joy that isn't always goal orientated or productivity orientated. I know foster caring for dogs is a really big one for you, which I think is just beautiful. Is there anything else that you do when you're, do you have, do you guys have an off season? Or do you have to make one for yourself? Yeah, usually like when I'm home in October until January is our off season and then the the domestic season starts January, February, March and then we head overseas in April or June for the World Cup. So, yeah, I think for me when the Olympics were postponed, I told my family we were going to foster a greyhound called Pink and it was the best thing ever because greyhounds are so beautiful and quirky and just quite calm actually and she's been the best thing 
I think we've done. She's, she's still with us. <laughs> foster turned adoption. like a foster fail, but she could also get adopted. But um, yeah, I think for me, it's also just doing things that help me calm down and switch off. So I love like watercolor painting, which I started a couple of years ago because it was easy to travel with and just something to like, even if I get some water and just blob some colors on just watching the colors like blend is just really calming and relaxing if I'm feeling a bit anxious or stressed and just catching up with friends when I'm home is yeah going out for coffee going to the beach doing you know bushwalks in the blue mountains being outside in nature is something that I always oh, that's so do. lovely I love watercolor it's so interesting how many people have a play TA that's very manual and very arty in that it's mutually exclusive with their devices like you can't watercolor and be on your phone or and on the treadmill or and doing something else yeah anytime you use your hands I think you you automatically aren't in your head as much because you're focused on doing something and and it's very tactical or visual or yeah I, I really enjoy that have you found that you've needed that more given that you have had such a big media response and an outpouring of love on social media but I can imagine it would be so hard to keep up with the whole nation being like my kids are watching you on the tv like we love you so much you know like the burnout to to stop you from burning out because you did need to keep competing and you're studying on the side how do you manage your your energy levels to keep kind of giving you know and with and filling up the cup I feel like it's been to my advantage this year that we've sort of had these bubbles because it meant I'm a bit more of an introvert so I was by myself in in the hotel room or I'd I'd have that quiet time to myself and I think that really helps me recharge if that's just reading a book or watching Netflix or you know painting or something but having that quiet time really helps for me because I'm an introvert whereas normally it is a bit more chaotic and I've got to really manage that energy and, and carve out the time a bit more um, so I think these Olympics were, were good because because of COVID, we didn't have as much stuff we had to do or we couldn't actually see as much media or do as much in, in a sense. So, yeah, I think it, it's definitely been important, but it worked in my favour a bit more this year, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Did you watch any other events oh, yeah. or was it just like stressful? Uh, it wasn't stressful. I'm just really emotional. So I would just cry happy tears watching people <laughs> in their dreams, you know, seeing my teammates winning gold medals in the swimming pool and like I just I had to I got to a point the day before my race where I was like you can watch it but with the sound off so that you don't get carried away with the emotion and by doing something else like cleaning your room so that I'm not so you know invested as much because I felt like I was just bawling my eyes out and they don't tell you how much crying you do at the Olympics it's just it's all the tears all the time all the emotions I love that so much ladies and gentlemen Jess missed her race because she was crying over the swimming finals (laughs) oh my god that's so sweet well second last question just to finish up what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation or interviews so maybe something that Someone in the Olympic Village who was living with you would know, but none of us would know. I was thinking we, we sort of we didn't really cover the the NATO as much because I was jumping all over the place. But I was thinking, and this maybe is such a millennial thing now, but I had an injury just before uh, coming home last year, where I cut my hand cutting an avocado, and I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically 
be really careful when you cut avocados. Do not try and stab the pip because that just went straight through and it was really stupid. As soon as I did it, I was like, what has he done? And my fingers kind of curled up straight away and I thought I'd done some really bad damage. Um, but thankfully, I just missed the tendon, the nerve and the artery. I got so, so lucky. But basically, the the surgeon that I saw when I got out of quarantine was like, you would have been out for 18 months. So I almost missed the Olympics because of an avocado, which I haven't really told that many people about. That is so amazing. But now I literally I love that. mush the avocado out. I don't even, like, I use a spoon. I don't trust myself with knives anymore. I love that you went straight for the pip, like just stab the shit out no, of the avocado. I didn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't stab it like you would imagine a, you know, a murderer stabbing. It was more like a, a big knife kind of like smash the pip. You know how you sort of you hold the avo in your palm and then you sort of like lightly tap the big knife and it kind of digs into the pip. Well, I had a little knife and it didn't work. It just kind of slipped straight went straight through into the flesh and uh, anyway so that's oh, that <laughs> oh my god it's not like you need your hands for your sport or anything <laughs> oh my god my worst injury and it wasn't even from kayaking or canoeing it was from a culinary mishap <laughs> so that's probably one um I'd say I've met all the royal family except for the queen <laughs> Because stop it. Yeah, because in London I got to meet uh the Duke and Duchess, Prince William and Princess Kate. <gasps> sort of they had this, I guess, Commonwealth reception where they met some of the medalists and things. So I got to I got to go to that and I was actually at my grandma's and she's got this big photo of it, which is why I thought of it, right next to the dining dining table. So that and then I got to meet Harry and um Meg when they Meg, like I know them, Harry and Megan. <laughs> when they Yeah, I know to, I'm like <laughs> Meg's my bestie. <laughs> when they came to Australia uh, a couple of years ago and same with Charles and Camilla. I don't know how, but I've always ended up at these events and it's been amazing. But, yeah, just missing the Queen now. So that's the next one on the list. Oh, and Queenie. Oh, my God. But I feel like as, you know, the world's foremost paddler, you could just request a meeting with the Queen. <laughs> I am Jess Fox. My dad has met the Queen, so I can just be like, well, now our whole family has met someone from the royal family. <laughs> do you fangirl? Like, do you ever fangirl people? Oh, yeah. Like, I would totally, I would not be able to keep my call. In the Olympic Village, I'd just be like, no! I, I fangirl all the time. I fangirled meeting Ash Barty and Steph. Oh, yeah. Like, just, I'm like, just play it cool, Jess, play it cool. But Ash Barty sent me a message on Instagram one day replying to my story and I was like, <gasps> I was on the bus going to trading and I was like, guys, Ash Barty just messaged me. And it was about coffee <laughs> or dogs or something, but that was my fangirl moment for sure. Oh, my God, I love that. You are a real human in that case. <laughs> if you fangirl other people, it's like that's really down to earth about you. <laughs> oh, they're amazing. I would fangirl Paul. I mean, and he's you, pretty and famous, you, but he feels like, <laughs> no, no, Paul way, way earlier than me. And I mean, you know, he's been along on your whole journey. He was cheering you on. He was yeah. like, he was consuming, he did our research. We did our research together. He nearly came on the call. He was just so excited, but I thought, I thought he'd yell the whole time. <laughs> oh, 
And very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite quote? And I'm going to ask you for one in English and French. Oh my God, I wasn't prepared for this. I should have told you. (laughs) Only if you have one. (laughs) I don't think I've got one in French, but I'll see if if one comes to mind. But I think it's funny because I, I, I love quotes, but I never remembered them. But I remember I started this when I was probably before London, I I get a fresh training diary and before filling it out or anything, I would go to random pages and write like little quotes or like little personal messages to myself or affirmations. And then, you know, throughout the year, you'd get to that page and you'd see this quote and it would kind of sometimes be a really nice message or something that connects with what you're going through. And um, this year I I sort of did the same thing. and, And one that really stood out to me was a river cuts through rock, not because of its power, but because of its persistence. And I was like, well, it connects to the river, to what I do. And also I just love any metaphor with rivers because it's always about flow and, you know, being relentless and that sort of thing. So I really loved that one, but also had this Japanese, I guess, concept that I sort of focused on the last four years, which is the concept of Kaizen. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's, um, it means continuous improvement. So always about, looking for those one percenters, just looking to be a little bit better than the day before. And that has really helped me each day to be like, okay, what can I do today to get me a little bit closer to my goal and to just keep improving that little bit more? Oh, they're beautiful. I love those ones. I love the river one. And there's another one that I love that's also kind of environmental slash geological <laughs> which I like. I just, a diamond is just a chunk of rock that did well under pressure. Yeah, same thing of like that relentless, like it's small, repeated motions, like the smaller habits that you do every day. It's not the big grand gestures of waking yeah. up and being an Olympic champion. It's all the tiny little steps that you took to get there. Because I think like that is the difference speaking to people like yourself versus people who still don't really know how to get to their goal. It's that they interpret it as one big jump and that's why they can't get there because they they're trying to find this big aha moment whereas it's all these little tidy ones and you're just focusing on the next small one each day and then suddenly you're like at 2021 in Tokyo it's like oh oh here I am (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a bit like that iceberg you know visual concept in that you might you might think that it was an aha moment as well for some people they might think oh wow but actually it's just the culmination of all those little things you've done to get there that have helped you have that breakthrough so yeah I think for me it was always believing that I could do it and that I dreaming about that gold medal but dreaming more so about doing the best race that I could at the Olympics and you know everyone kept saying oh you deserve that gold medal you deserve it and you know I was like yeah, I deserve this. <laughs> but it's more that, you know, actually you can't say you deserve it until you've gone and earned it. You've got to say, I deserve to do my best today. You know, and I think that applies to any industry, anything, whenever you've got a really big moment. It's, well, if you've worked really hard for this and if you've committed, you know, so much time and energy and you've really applied yourself, you deserve to do the best you can on that day and, and show the world what you can do. Oh, Jess, well, you absolutely have shown us all and are just such an inspiring and delightful human, sportswoman, role model for us all. Merci beaucoup, ça m'a beaucoup plu. <laughs> On est très fiers de toi. <laughs> Mais tu parles combien de langues? Bah, 
plusieurs. Je ne parle que l'anglais couramment, juste. <rire> J'ai étudié le français, le chinois et le japonais. Wow. Et un peu l'italien, l'espagnol. Je m'intéresse beaucoup aux langues étrangères. Oui. Mm. That's amazing. Just, just Sarah talking about how many languages she can speak. And I'm just in awe. That's incredible. <laughs> Mostly, a lot of them I learned like at Sion's Po just from how many international students there were there and being exposed to like yeah. such a melting pot of languages because all the Latin languages are so similar. You just kind of absorb yeah. by immersion. It was so good. I kind of, we're going to Spain next week and I always say that I can understand it, but I struggle, but I don't have all the vocab to speak it. But whenever I'm in doubt, I just say the word in French and add an O or an A at the end. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they understand. Or like a D, like Yeah. <laughs> and all of those yeah. or add a dad at the end and I'm like yes a dad or an ias like gracias all of those I'm like mm, probably That'll not be. gonna work most of the time <laughs> but I sound Spanish so it's fine <laughs> do you speak French with your mum yeah we speak like Franglish you know and it's funny because when I'm tired sometimes it depends like I'm in France at the moment so sometimes the words in English don't come to me as easily which is weird and then when I'm in Australia the French words don't come to me as easily so whenever I'm tired it's like I my brain has to then revert to the other language yeah <laughs> did you have an accent because you were four right when you came Yeah, Did you, no. well, you were little, had a little French accent at school. Oh my God, so cute. I don't know, actually. Well, my parents were a bit worried because they didn't know if I spoke English when we came to Australia. <laughs> Mum would always speak to me in French and dad would always speak to me in English, but I would always reply in French. So they were like, eh, just chuck her in school and see what happens. But yeah, once I was there, I was fine. I might have had an accent at the start. I'm not sure. But I don't have an accent now in French or English, which is good. I didn't even know. It was Ange. Ange was like, I can't believe you're speaking to Jess. Oh, my God, speak French to her. I was like, oh, she's French. She's like, she doesn't have an accent. She's a total bogan, but she speaks French. I was like, okay, I'll practice. <laughs> I always see little kids, though, like who speak their normal, like their mother tongue, and it just happens to be a foreign language, and I'm like, oh. They're so smart. Like, how do they speak fluent Chinese or whatever? And they're like, it's the only language I speak. But for some reason, I'm just so impressed by little kids yeah. who speak different languages. I, yeah. I wish I, I'm so fascinated by languages. I think it's amazing. And especially when you learn young, your brain just is so cute. You're up. a sponge. <laughs> well, thank you so much, lovely. Congratulations on everything. And thank you so much for your time. This has been delightful. I've been fangirling you the entire time. I think this is the least articulate I've been in a long time because I was just like, oh, Jess, oh, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> thank you so much. It was so nice to chat. Love the giggling as well. It's just, it's nice to start the day this way for me here. It's been great. Oh, I just enjoyed this one so much. What an absolute legend, especially having followed Jess so closely at the Olympics. How special to get a bit of the behind the scenes of her experience finally grabbing that gold. If she made you smile like she did for me, please give Jess some love over at JessFox94 on Instagram. I know our guests are always just so blown away by the neighborhood feedback and it means so much to me to know that you're showering our guests with love. I hope you're all looking after yourself at this crazy time that just seems to get crazier and crazier and finding little ways every day to seize your yay. 